Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. My name is Tristan Webb. I'm a senior tax trainer here at Tax Banter and host of today's podcast. Now, everyone in the accounting industry will be aware of the recent finalised ATO guidance on Section 100A. Section 100A is an integrity provision in the 36 Act. Late last year, the ATO finalised two pieces of guidance on Section 100A. Firstly, there was tax ruling uh, 2022-4 and accompanied Practical Compliance Guideline 2022-2. Today, we'll be hearing from Chris Ryan to gain further insight into ATO's approach regarding Section 100A issues. Chris is the Acting Assistant Commissioner of Engagement and Assurance Services at the ATO. He's responsible for leading teams in the delivery of the Abusive Use of Trusts, Top 500, High Wealth, private groups and medium and emerging programs of work under the Tax Avoidance Task Force. Under the Trust Program, Christopher is responsible for supporting and the development of administrative approaches and technical views on trust matters. Prior to joining the ATO, Chris worked in a mid-tier accounting firm where he advised private groups and wealthy families from a diverse range of industries. Welcome to TaxYak, Chris. Thanks, Tristan. Great to be here. No problems. All right, so the ATO has released the finalised guidance on Section 100A. Can you tell us a bit about what this section is all about? So like you said in your intro, Tristan, Section 100A is an anti-avoidance rule that applies to trusts, uh, essentially where beneficiaries' entitlement arose from uh, an agreement uh, arrangement or understanding. In order for 100A to apply, uh, there has to be that agreement um, that either uh, occurs before or at the time of the present entitlement. Someone other than the beneficiary receives the benefit of the trust income, and at least one of the parties to the arrangement um, has, a be- has a, an intention to reduce their tax or reduce tax of somebody. Importantly, though, Section 100A does not apply where the, the arrangement is entered into in the course of ordinary family or commercial dealings. And that's the the critical part. Another key point there is no doubt, note for your uh, listeners, is that Section 100A doesn't apply where the beneficiary simply receives and enjoys the benefit of their entitlement. And that's what we, uh, we understand that in, happens in most cases with uh, taxpayers and trustees. But to the extent that Section 100A does apply, the consequence then is that the beneficiary is deemed not to be and never to have been presently entitled to the trust income. So they're not assessed. And instead, the trustee then is assessed on that trust income at the trustee rate. Right. So uh, I guess for most accountants, um, it's a little bit puzzling because Section 100A, of course, was introduced into the 36 Act um, such a long time ago. So I believe it it goes right back to 79 or something like that. And um, why is it important to provide guidance on Section 100A and why are you doing it now? Thanks, look, that's a, a good question. So since it was introduced in 79, like you said, there's been only a small number of cases that have considered Section 100A. And predominantly um, you know, before um, recent years, they looked at 
um, arrangements which on their face would um, able to say were reasonably egregious. There hadn't been guidance of the ordinary dealings test uh, in uh, by the courts. But in more recent years, uh, the Commission has been applying Section 100A in, in active cases, and a number of uh, practitioners and taxpayers have been asking us to provide uh, binding guidance on the topic. We did release a fact sheet on our website in 2014, um, <clears throat> and it was in, indicative of uh, you know, our, our views as to risk. Um, but despite that, we were still being asked um, quite regularly for um, authoritative guidance that um, was binding upon the Commissioner, which is why we've um, sought to release it. Now, we did release a draft in 2021, and that, that would have been released a bit earlier, but for the COVID pandemic. And we felt that the timing was inappropriate to release that in the middle of uh, 2021 or early 2021, uh, given the, uh, the strain that many practitioners were under trying to support their clients with stimulus measures and um, as the, you know, they were in the middle of lockdowns. So we did delay the release uh, a bit to allow those practitioners time to um, support their clients and, um, and their staff. Yep. And so when you're looking at this practically, is there, do, do you sort of take that into consideration that there's been this sort of period where the only thing that people have been relying on is the 2014 guidance and, um, and now, of course, we've got this stuff that, well, this guidance that applies potentially retrospectively. So take that into consideration when you're looking at this. Look, absolutely. So <clears throat> the Commission has a practice statement about uh, when... Um, he should uh, apply the law prospectively only or prospectively and retrospectively. And we went through a bit of a process of looking at that throughout 2020 and 2021 to consider whether or not the Commissioner has um, previously made statements as to what is within 100A and what is not within 100A. Um, the 2014 fact sheet obviously factors into that, yeah. but we were of the view that um, having done that analysis, including the, the cases that we had actually applied 100A to uh, or investigated for 100A, that it meant that um, there was no U-turn, so to speak, in the, in the Commissioner's um, application of 100A. It was um, that we had you know, given clear guide um, signposts to things that were um, not allowed. Those things um, you know, will be uh, um, within that, but then the other broader things we said, here are some other things that we think are allowed, and within the application date of the PCG, um, we won't go and look at those, um, essentially. And where a taxpayer believes that they have relied on um, or applied reasonable care in uh, in their affairs and believes that they've relied upon that, um, that fact sheet, um, then we won't look at those as well. Yeah. We were... I... And I'm just going to inform the listener of this, but just prior to this, uh, Chris and I were enjoying a, a, a little uh, a, a cup of caffeine just down the road, and uh, we were just chatting about a situation that could emerge where, for instance, um, so you've got an individual who's a beneficiary of a trust, and in 20, say, 16 or 18 or something like that, um, obviously a, a adult child was made presently entitled, and... What ended up happening was the um, adult child put in place a, a Div 7A loan agreement in respect of um, the the present entitlement. Now, what's your view on that? Is that do you think that 
goes towards um, any particular area of the law on Section 100A? Yeah, so look, uh, an arrangement like, like what you've described, um, our view is that it would more likely to be within the green zone, um, whether or not um, done pre-PCG uh, release or, or post. Yeah. Now, I might just um, make a comment about the set of uh, circumstances here in that you mentioned the, um, the adult child beneficiary um, loaned the funds back to the trust on complying 7A terms. Now, certainly we're not saying that that is a, a prerequisite for every arrangement, right. but in this particular circumstance, the taxpayers did that. As, uh, as described in the PCG, we see uh, 7A terms as um, somewhat of a proxy for commercial terms. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> the arrangement you described is you know, very similar to our green zone arrangement where a private company beneficiary loans the funds back to the trustee for working capital purposes. Yeah. Except the difference here is that instead of there being a company um, that um, makes a loan, there's an individual. So in our view, that sort of arrangement would um, is uh, more likely to be within the green zone. Yep, totally understand. Um, now, we've obviously sort of touched on the fact that the TR has come out, the PCG's come out as well, and there's obviously been a little bit of change, a little bit of movement in between the release of those two documents, or the four documents actually. Um, can you sort of just walk us through those changes a little bit? Yeah, so within the ruling, um, we went to, um, we made a number of technical changes throughout the document. Um, and we, in particular, between the release of the, um, the guidance and uh, the finalisation of the guidance, uh, the decision in B-Blood uh, was handed down. Um, we made amendment to the, the ruling to account for that, but also to, account, um, to further account for the Guardian AOT decision, which was at that point only the full federal, uh, sorry, the federal court decision, uh, not the full federal court decision that was released a, uh, a little after the guidance was finalised. We also made a number of changes to better clarify the ordinary dealing exception and try to provide a bit more clarity to um, to how it can apply and how it can apply to different family circumstances. Within the PCG, we made a number of changes um, because there was quite a bit of feedback around the complexity of the document yeah. and how, um, how useful it would be in practice. Many were concerned by different uh, phrases and terms that were uh, not as well uh, defined as they could be, but also um, by the blue zone just generally. Yep. So we're trying to, to simplify the, the language used in the PCG quite considerably. We removed the blue zone altogether. Um, <clears throat> it was intended uh, originally to just be a description of the zone within which if you're not in the green or the red, it wasn't a, a traffic light, orange or amber zone at all. Yep. It just described something that we hadn't turned our minds to in the PCG. So we've removed that altogether. And then the other, the other changes were the introduction of additional green zone scenarios, uh, one of which being a situation where the beneficiary receives the benefit um, <clears throat> and, and has the use of that benefit within two years of being made presently entitled. Yeah. And um, another uh, to better explain that a, a distribution to an entity that has losses um, <clears throat> can be, where, where that can be within the green zone. The last thing I might note is that within the red zone, we narrowed a few of the, um, the scenarios, but in particular, we narrowed the uh, scenario five regarding loss entities 
so that it was more, better targeted only to those arrangements whereby the beneficiary is not within the family group. Yep. Okay. Um, I guess one of the things that I'm hearing a little bit when I'm going out and talking to practitioners about this is that they're sort of looking at, okay, so I'm looking at the PCG. I can see that I'm not in the green, but I may be in that sort of area that you're just talking about, which used to be blue um, or red, right? And so there's, let's assume that there's been a few distributions maybe of just you know, out, out to say again, adult child, but it ha- it's in terms of quantum, it's not that substantial. Um, but because of the way that the PCG is is worded, they're in one of those slightly more high risk areas. But we're hearing from the ATO as well that um, that they're not going to take action on on um, on transactions basically that are not more egregious. Can you tell us a little bit about what you sort of classify as being more egregious and what's less? So, for instance, if it was, say, just a $20,000 distribution to um, an adult child beneficiary and that adult child beneficiary also had a lot of personal um, expenses and and benefits that they can show that they are able to get from that money, um, even though they're it's maybe within one of those more more dangerous zones, so to speak, um, is that more likely to be less egregious? Yes, look, it's a good question, and I think one that um, many practitioners are grappling with. So where a the beneficiary, and it could be an adult child beneficiary or just any beneficiary, right, but where they receive and enjoy the benef- uh, benefit of their ent- entitlement, um, then Hundred has no work to do. Yeah. Right? So if, um, using your example, there was you know, an adult child beneficiary um, and they received a distribution of, say, $20,000, um, then, but throughout the course of that year or the next year, for example, um, you know, the trust uh, paid for uh, $20,000 worth of their, their personal expenses. It might be things like paying board for, um, whether, like, for their accommodation, whether it's with, you know, mum and dad or maybe with um, grandma and grandpa or, um, you know, their rent with someone else. It might be their you know, living expenses, might be buying them a car, paying their tuition fees. Um, all of those things are costs that the adult child, okay, the adult has properly incurred on their own behalf and they could either pay for those uh, by way of you know, having a job somewhere or through their trust distribution. Um, but by virtue of the fact that they've paid through, through the trust distribution means that they've received um, the benefit and use it for their own be- and use it for their benefit. Yeah. So that's an arrangement to which um, 100A just would not have application whatsoever because the present child beneficiary got the benefit. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. That's totally understandable. Um, I guess the other thing that's coming up a little bit is the retrospective nature of it. Now we know that, of course, that the ruling applies both before and after, but you do have that 2014 guidance that um, that some practitioners are, are going to be relying upon. But of course, Section 100A as an integrity measure is pretty much an, has an unlimited amendment period. So. If somebody has something that's going back quite a long period, is there any is there any sort of time limit in which they can actually feel safe? Do you think, or is it just does it, is it once again a sort of a, how long's a piece of string situation? Yeah. So look within the the fact sheet, we um, we outlined that there's um we focus on the, the green and red zones. There is also the white zone, which is those arrangements that were entered into um, before one July twenty fourteen. Yeah. And so. 
we um, we won't be going back to look at those uh, those periods unless there's some sort of arrangement which uh, occurred both before and after that um, that period, which wouldn't require a distribution of income you know, both before and after. Um, just having a, a UPE um, outstanding from 30 June 2014 and no future UPEs or distributions of um, in that arrangement, that UPE wouldn't be um, subsist. Uh, that UPE, sorry, going across the years is not sufficient by itself. Say it's um, before and after. Right. Let me make that clear. But for other arrangements where um, that we, you know, we we ordinarily wouldn't go back to look at those unless there was some other reason that we had to go back. And you know, 2014 is quite a long time ago. I'd suggest that almost all arrangements in that period are with outside of the ordinary period of review. So the only other reason why we might be looking back at something that, that old would be for things like fraud or evasion. And I think that your listeners would understand that you know, where we expect this fraud or evasion, which has a very high bar to meet, yep. um, that only then you know, we should be going and looking at those arrangements. Um, so, yeah, look, I think most taxpayers should feel reassured that we won't be going and looking back at lots of arrangements in um, in the past. Yep, yeah, fair enough. Look, my, my next question was going to be around something that we've already spoken a little bit about, but you might want to sort of further elaborate. So, um, and I know that a lot of people out there from my discussions with accountants will be um, probably looking at this particular exception. So it's the ordinary family or commercial dealing exception. And I was just wondering if you sort of wanted to put any more flesh on the bones in respect of that. Yeah, look, I'm happy to, to put it more flesh on the bones, so to speak. Um, it is something, though, that we are seeking further digital guidance on. And I, I think that's not controversial to say that, um, you know, we would like some better guidance from the courts. Um, <clears throat> but broadly, uh, what it refers to is an arrangement which is um, one that was entered into objectively to achieve family or commercial uh, objectives. Um, <clears throat> whether a particular arrangement does meet the, uh, that, that test will depend on its facts. Uh, and that, that might be a bit trite to say, but at the same time, you know, every family is different. Every situation is different. And um, the reasons why you know, one family member might um, you know, make a loan or a gift to another party or, or not um, you know, receive the benefit of their entitlement uh, will always differ, okay? Um, <clears throat> so it, what it is is you know, we, um, you know, we, we do know, know that there's a very broad range of um, circumstances and we will consider each one on their facts when, um, when presented with, um, with that by a taxpayer if we're undertaking a review or an order of their affairs. Yeah. I guess when, when I'm talking to clients about this, because of the the, the nature of the, the, the guidance that's out there at present, um, there seems to be... So, for instance, if you're making distributions to, say, older family members, there's that... Um, discussion of it being a cultural thing so you're actually distributing out to and you're paying say for expenses in other years maybe and uh, um, in relation to the living expenses of the older older parents but then let's say you don't do it in one year and that benefit happens to go back to another to to another beneficiary um, but you might be able to argue in that case that oh because we have a cultural tradition of doing that then that's the reason why um, you know we look after our, our, our um, folks in retirement. So um, if they're you know from a particular ethnic group, they may do that more often than say another ethnic group. 
Um, is that something that um, if you're not within, say, an, a particular ethnic group, you could rely upon, do you think? Or do, is it it's just all facts and circumstances, I guess? I suppose that it really is all facts and circumstances, yeah. fortunately. Um, you know, because it, the, it is uh, about the, the circumstances of the family and uh, ordinary family um, you know, more more broadly. So it's uh, there are no hard and fast rules. And I know accountants... Um, love to have those hard and fast rules yeah. um but unfortunately this is not something that um that we can you know, provide that, that sort of um guarantee on in our views particularly not when there's when we're you know, awaiting uh, further digital guidance from, from the courts as to the interpretation of this yeah. um but i mean and look, one last thing i'd say is that um just because you know it's it's ordinary within a family to have a, a culture of uh, paying less tax that would uh, not of itself uh, make it an ordinary family dealing yeah what what about the situation where you've got, um, say, uh, and, and I just went through that example of say that you had older people that are in retirement or maybe living not living in Australia or what have you, you do, you make um, them presently entitled to the, the trust income in a particular year, um, and let's say that you so we just dealt with the situation of where instead of paying it out. Um, the, the 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 trust hangs onto it and it's drawn down by another beneficiary through their loan loan account. So we can see that the economic benefit is clearly going to um, that particular beneficiary who who utilised it through the loan account. Um, but let's say that you instead, and it could be exactly the same scenario from an economic substance point of view, where where those older folks are made presently entitled, but instead of actually um, not paying it out, you pay it out directly to them and then they gift that amount back to that particular beneficiary. Now, what, when I talk to accounts about this, they seem, seem to say, well, how does the, once the present entitlement has actually been paid through, um, what's to stop them, so the folks, um, you know, making a gift to the daughter? Um, and I know that the, the technical answer to that is probably because... The ATO with Section 100A has the ability to to, to um, extinguish the present entitlement. I guess. Um, do you have anything to, to say around that? Or so I think it comes back to the critical part of 100A, which is that the um, the present entitlement arose from the agreement. Right. So if there's a uh, an agreement by which the trustee um, and uh, and another party, which it may include the beneficiary, the the non-resident parent or the um, the resident uh, daughter, um, but if they, there's an agreement in advance that they're going to distribute to the non-resident, mm-hmm. but someone else being the daughter is going to get the benefit, uh, then Section 108 uh, absolutely has the potential to apply. Yeah. Where though um, there isn't that agreement in, uh, in advance, um, and circumstances are that, that uh, what you describe is what ultimately occurs, then. Section 100A would um, would not have an application because the entitlement did not arise from the agreement, yeah. right? Um, but where there's a um, a pattern of behaviour that uh, that of itself does not you know, make there to be an, an agreement, but it may be indicative of there having been an agreement, and that might be what uh, raises our concerns to go and investigate an arrangement right. um, and ask more questions about it. Yeah, so I, I completely understand that. So, and I guess that's the other aspect that you're looking at. So, obviously, 
when you're looking at 100A, there's those the, the, the technical requirements. So one of those technical requirements is that the reimbursement agreement has to have arisen in relation to or in connection with the present entitlement, which yeah. is, I think, exactly what you're talking about. And then, I, I guess, of course, you're looking at that tax avoidance purpose as well. So if it's happened over and over again, then it's much more likely that there's a clear tax avoidance purpose there. But if there's a one-off, then maybe not so. That's right. That's it. And uh, like I said, it depends on the facts, unfortunately. But um, you know, if there's like you know a, a very large tax benefit and it was a one-off, that may um, trigger us to go and look at it. Um, but then, uh, like you said, it, it depends on the circumstances of whether or not the, at the very least, whether or not the entitlement arose from the um, like from there being an agreement in, uh, beforehand. Yep. Yeah. Great. So I guess, um, you know, we're coming to the end of uh, the, the podcast today and hope, hope you, uh, the listeners are get, getting something out of it. But um, I was just wondering if you have any ATO advice as far as practical tips on managing um, Section 100A risk. Look, absolutely. Um, we've put in our practical compliance guideline um, some tips around what kind of record keeping taxpayers could keep um, or that their advice can help them to keep. It's not, you know, absolute requirements. You must have, you know, X, Y, and Z in there. Um, but these are tips and suggestions for what you can keep to um, make it easier. So that if there is a review in the future, um, you know, you've got the evidence there to support why an arrangement was not um, a reimbursement agreement for 100A. And look, particularly where an arrangement enters is um, within the green zone, we really encourage you to keep those records because um, that will make it much smoother and easier to evidence to us that an arrangement was in the green zone and that we um, don't need to go and look any further at it. Right, excellent. Yeah, I suppose one of the big things with this is that um, there it is a very technical um, sort of provision, isn't it, Section 100A? And then it also, of course, as we've seen over the years, um, the interaction between trust law and tax law is always something that is, is challenging, I guess, for, for accountants to manage. So I think for the listeners out there, you saying that, you know, if something's in the green zone then, um, and you've got the, the records on file to, to indicate that it definitely is, um, then you're probably not going to be that much interested in it. Then that's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a, that's good news, I guess, for, for most of the listeners out there. Um, I guess what we've got to think about too as practitioners is is that we don't want to just focus on um, Section 100A. So it's great that we've got those practical tips on, on managing 100A risk, but is there anything else, do you think, around uh, trust distributions that we should be thinking about? Yeah, look, I think it's um, you know, 100A is just a timely reminder of the broader uh, compliance obligations that trustees have and you know, making sure to get things right. It's the simple things like making sure as a practitioner, you've got a copy of, of the trust deed for your clients, having read the deed to understand you know, what is the income of the trust estate. Yeah. When you do resolutions, um, making sure you understand which uh, income definition you're using to distribute and then making sure that the um, resolution properly reflects that. Um, you know, and then also in the return, those little simple things, you know, practitioners get wrong sometimes. And like you said, it's a very complex area. Um, because every deed is different, but you know, getting those right very much helps with um, making sure that um, you know, you're supporting your clients, your trust clients in particular, and um, helping them to get things right. Yeah, excellent. 
Well, uh, that was fantastic. I'm, I certainly got something out of that. It's just uh, half an hour or so of your time, and then I'm sure it's uh, well invested. So that's it for this episode of Tax Yak. I've, of course, been chatting with Christopher Ryan from the ATO. So like it or not, Section 100A is part of our tax law. So hopefully this discussion with the ATO has obviously helped practitioners to understand their obligations the risks and what they need to do. That's in terms of both, of course, a review of what you've done um, in that period, really from 2014 up until um, 2022. And then, of course, for your 2023 year distribution. So thanks very much, Chris, for coming in. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest further topics or speakers. You can also contact the Tax Yak team on the email, which is podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review uh, the show wherever you are. It will help us improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to joining you again next time. Thanks very much and bye for now. Thanks, Chris. Thanks.